In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. InshaAllah we'll be starting from the uh, chapter, from chapter number 15. Babu ma jaa fi sifati dir'i rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is the chapter about the description of the armor of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So of course, after having talked about the sword of the Prophet ﷺ, now Imam Tirmidhi brings a chapter describing the armor of the Prophet ﷺ. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُو سَعِيدٌ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ إِبْنُ سَعِيدٌ الْأَشَجِّ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا يُنُسُ بْنُ بُكَيْبٍ عَنْ مُحَمَّدٍ بْنِ إِسْحَاقٍ عَنْ يَحْيَى إِبْنَ عَبَادٍ إِبْنَ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ إِبْنُ الزُّبَيْرِ عَنْ أَبِيهِ عَنْ جَدِّهِ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ إِبْنُ الزُّبَيْرِ عن الزبير بن العوام رضي الله تعالى عنهم قال كان على النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يوم أحد درعان فنهض إلى الصخرة فلم يستطع فأقعد طلحة تحته وصاعد النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم حتى استوى على الصخرة قال سمعت النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول أوجب طلحة Zubayrun al-Awam radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa on the day of Uhud, during the battle of Uhud, was wearing two armors, one on top of another. So the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa went to climb on to a big rock and he wasn't able to. So Talha sat down. And the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu climbed on top of him until he was able to climb on top of the rock. And he says that I heard the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam saying that paradise has become mandatory on Talha. Talha radiallahu ta'ala anhu, it's related about him. The Sahaba used to say that Uhud was the day of Talha. Uhud was the day of Talha. We talked about it earlier today. Talha radiallahu ta'ala anhu was one of the people who fell back to protect the Prophet sallallahu in the battlefield on the, on the day of Uhud. And it said that he was defending the Prophet sallallahu with even his body. He was fighting as many people as he could fight, but otherwise he was defending the Prophet sallallahu with his body. And there was not a single place on his body where he didn't have some type of a scratch or a wound or something by the time the battle was done. So much so that his arm was injured so badly that he lost the use of his arm. So he, on that day, on the day of Uhud, he was not able to 
Uh, after that day, he no longer had the use of his arms. So the Sahaba used to say, and the Prophet ﷺ also then made this comment, Talha, uh, paradise has become mandatory on Talha. So the Sahaba used to say that Uhud was the day of Talha. Now, it mentions that the Prophet ﷺ was wearing two uh, layers of armor. Um, and that basically is alluding to the fact that the Prophet ﷺ That take something to protect you when you go out into the battlefield. The Prophet of Allah of course he taught us that that tie your camel and then have put your trust in Allah. So it is from the sunnah of the Prophet to take the proper means. And of course the Messenger of Allah understanding that everything that he does is guidance in and of itself in its very essence and it sets an example and a precedent for those that will come after him. So the Prophet also wearing double the armor was also for the purpose to teach the Muslims, the Sahaba and us that we should always take precautionary measures and that in and of itself is from the sunnah. <clears throat> the second hadith قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَحْمَدُ بْنُ أَبِي عُمَرَ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا سُفْيَانُ بْنُ عُيَيْنَا عَنْ يَزِيدِ بْنِ خُسَيْفَةَ عَنِ السَّائِبِ بْنِ يَزِيدِ أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ كَانَ عَلَيْهِ يَوْمَ أُحُدْ دِرْعَان قَدْ ظَهَرَ بَيْنَهُمَا السَّائِبِ بْنِ يَزِيدِ رضي الله تعالى عنه relates that the Prophet of Allah on the day of Uhud was wearing two armors, which means that he was wearing one on top of another. He had reinforced himself, he had reinforced his protection by wearing two layers of armor. <clears throat> Before we move on to the next chapter, as we talked about in the previous chapter, about the different um, swords of the Prophet so similarly here, uh, the scholars do mention, again, Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala <clears throat> has compiled this information in his book Zadul Ma'ad about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And um, he says that the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had seven different armors that he wore in his lifetime. He had seven different armors that he wore in his lifetime. Maybe not necessarily all at one time, meaning that he may, didn't even possess all of them at the same time, but there are seven unique or different armors that the Prophet ﷺ wore throughout his lifetime. The first one was called Dhatul Fudul. The reason why this was called Dhatul Fudul was because it was very lengthy. It was very lengthy, it was a little bit longer. And this was something, this was an armor that was made out of iron. It was very heavy, it was very strong. And this is the armor that the Prophet ﷺ had put down uh, as a rahan, as a deposit, uh, when he had taken a loan from the Jewish man. Abu Shaham al-Yahudi, when he had taken the loan from the Jewish man, um, the famous incident where he comes to recover his loan uh, before uh, it was time to pay it back. He came back like a few days early. And the, the loan the Prophet ﷺ had taken was for a year. And he came back earlier than it was time for the repayment of the loan. Some narrations say a month earlier. And the Prophet ﷺ had put a deposit as well, this armor of Dhatul Fudul, that was very heavy, made out of pure iron. It was very uh, expensive as well. 
<clears throat> and he came back to receive it early and he was very rude and abrasive with the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ told him, look, the terms have not expired of the loan. You also have the rahan, the deposit as well. But he was not budging. He was being very belligerent. And that's when Umar advanced forward and grabbed him and said, oh, Messenger of Allah, let me, you know, take care of him. And the Prophet ﷺ reprimanded Umar and he said, no, that is not appropriate, Ya Umar. And then he said that I owe him money. He said what you should have done is that you should have advised him to be more polite and respectful. And you should have advised me to repay his loan if he's no longer happy. Um, and that's when the Prophet ﷺ said, take him to so and so and make sure that he has repaid his loan. Uh, let them know that I'm asking them to repay him on my behalf. And then the Prophet ﷺ told Umar ﷺ, you go and do something nice for him because you were rude to him. Um, so this is that incident. So this was that armor called Dhatul Fudul. The other armors the Prophet ﷺ possessed, one was called Dhatul Wishah, Dhatul Wishah. Another one was called Dhatul Hawashi. Another armor was called Asadiya. Another armor was called Fidda. Another armor was called Al Batra. And then the seventh one was called Al Khidnaq. Al Khidnaq. There are different reasons why some of the scholars mention why it was named what it was named. A couple of them were named because of where they came from, like a Sa'diyah and things like that. Fidda had some silver in it. Dhatul Wishah or Dhatul Hawashi. Basically, the armor had like certain chain links hanged. Uh, hanging off of it, so things like that. So there were different reasons why they were named what they were named, but the Prophet ﷺ in total wore seven different armors in his lifetime. Chapter number 16. Babu maja'a fi sifati mighfari Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is a chapter about the description of the helmet of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The first hadith قال حدثنا قتيبة بن سعيد قال حدثنا مالك بن أنس عن ابن شهاب عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم دخل مكة وعليه مغفر فقيل له هذا ابن خطل متعلق بأسار الكعبة فقال أقتلوه أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه relates that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم entered Makkah and he was wearing a helmet it was said to him that here is Ibn Khatal and he is holding on to the curtains of the Kaaba and the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said execute him now First and foremost, of course, the topic at hand, and that is the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam wearing a, a helmet. So again, um, a lot of description is not provided for the helmet other than the fact that the helmet was not very big or very huge that the Prophet Sallallahu used to wear. It also was not extremely heavy, uh, but the Prophet Sallallahu used to wear a helmet that would just about cover most of his head and also used to come down on his face a little bit to provide that type of protection. And we talked about it that in the Battle of Uhud, the helmet of the Prophet ﷺ, because of a strike, ended up causing injury to the face of the Prophet ﷺ. 
But nevertheless, wearing a helmet was a standard part of wearing armor in the battlefield. And so the Prophet ﷺ, again, similarly, would also don a helmet. He would wear a helmet to protect his head. Now, there's some other narrations, which I'll just kind of touch on here very briefly, um, because the narration mentions that he entered Mecca on the day of the conquest of Mecca. So this is referring, when it says, Dakhla Mecca, he entered Mecca, this is referring to the day of the conquest of Mecca, Fathu Mecca. There are some other narrations which describe that the Prophet ﷺ at the conquest of Mecca, or at that time, in that occasion, was wearing a turban. He had a turban tied on his head. So there's a lot of discussion now between the Muhaddithun and amongst the scholars. Was the Prophet ﷺ wearing a turban? Was he wearing a helmet? And then there's certain amount of discussion. I don't quite want to... Uh, say it's unnecessary, but there's a certain amount of takalluf, uh, some forcing the issue, issue within some of the discussions, where then they talk about that it's possible the Prophet some kind of tied a turban on top of his helmet, uh, or something of that nature, but it's really unnecessary, uh, unnecessary to try to merge the two narrations together, because the way to understand it is that when they were entering into Mecca, because that was basically a military procedure or military action, they were entering into Mecca formally, uh, as an army, that at that time the Prophet ﷺ was wearing the helmet because that's what's appropriate. But once they entered into Mecca and it, you know there was no conflict, there was no fighting, there was nothing of that nature, but Mecca surrendered. And so the Prophet ﷺ then at that time removed his helmet and that's when he had tied on his turban. So it depends on who saw the Prophet ﷺ and when they saw the Prophet ﷺ on the day of the conquest of Mecca when he was actually entering into Mecca or rather when he had entered into Mecca and entered into the masjid because when entering into the masjid the Prophet ﷺ did not want to wear the helmet he removed the helmet and then tied the turban so to as to enter the masjid in a state of peace not necessarily in, as a state uh, <clears throat> not necessarily in a state of aggression <clears throat> So that's a little bit of detail about some of the narrations and when the Prophet ﷺ entered, what exactly was he wearing at that time. Now, <clears throat> the other thing to mention here, which obviously jumps out uh, about the narration, <clears throat> the other thing I wanted to also mention was when the Prophet ﷺ was wearing the helmet and he was entering into uh, Mecca as well, <clears throat> that never compromised the humility of the Prophet that never compromises humility. <clears throat> but what's related about him is that the Prophet was traveling at the back of the army. And while traveling at the back of the army, the Prophet had his head lowered. And he was making the dhikr and the tasbih in the takbir of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He was praising and glorifying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <clears throat> there was no... Uh, singing, there was no celebrating, there was no blaring of the horns, there was no overt celebration of that time, at that time, or boasting at that time, but it was very quiet, very somber. The Prophet ﷺ had instructed all the companions to engage in the praise and the glorification of Allah, and he himself was in dhikr at the back of the armies, and his head was lowered. So even though he was entering, you know, um, uh, dressed appropriately, for battle, because that was the occasion, that still did not compromise the humility of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, obviously, the thing that's mentioned here at the end of narration that might, um, <clears throat> you know, some folks might be curious about, what is this mention about this Ibn Khattal and exactly what's going on here? The Prophet of Allah ﷺ, 
When they entered into Makkah, the general advice and the instruction from the Prophet ﷺ was to forgive people um, and to provide safety. And the Prophet ﷺ said, anyone who goes into their homes or particularly to honor Abu Sufyan, because Abu Sufyan was the one who came and presented the proposal about uh, surrendering Makkah and establishing peace in Makkah, the Prophet ﷺ said, anyone who enters Abu Sufyan's home will also be safe and protected, and anyone that stays within their homes will be safe and protected. We will not violate anyone's personal space. We will not enter anyone's homes. Unless and until somebody comes out into the streets armed, wanting to fight, that is the only time that action will be taken against someone. There was an exception. There was a list of individuals that were an exception. That these were individuals who were convicted, confirmed to have killed Muslims in personal aggression. Not even necessarily in the battlefield, but individuals who had personally, individually committed acts of aggression against other individuals. That there was a list of such people that was identified and that was designated. And they were specifically, the Prophet said, find these individuals and basically carry out the punishment that is appropriate for them. The Prophet ﷺ still provided uh, an outlet for them, and he said that if they accept Islam, if they become Muslim, then we will not take any type of action against them. Because Al-Islamu yahdimu ma kana qablahu. Islam eradicates whatever existed before it. So then we won't take any action against them. <clears throat> so Ibn Khattal, this individual, his own individual story is that he was somebody who came from Makkah to Medina and said that he was Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ, he at that time asked the Prophet ﷺ for some work, some responsibilities, and the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, fine, you can help me in collecting some of the zakat, some of the charity and the donations from individuals. He went to go and collect certain donations and things like that. He asked the Prophet ﷺ, he said, okay, if I'm going to go on this task, if you're going to give me this job, then I'd like for you to give me an assistant that can help me conduct this work, that can help me do this job. So the Prophet ﷺ gave him an assistant, gave him an Ansari Sahabi, um, and he said, he will assist you. He ended up murdering that Ansari, and then fled from there back to Mecca, and announced that I am not Muslim. I renounce my Islam. So this was something that was completely unprovoked, unsolicited. He himself came from Mecca to Medina, said, I want to become Muslim ask for work, ask for an assistant, then murders the assistant, then runs away back to Mecca, and then renounces his Islam. Um, and not only that, then of course, what basically established the fact that this was all premeditated, and this was something that was planned, was that when he went back to Mecca, then he used to brag about it, that this is what I did to Muhammad. And he had actually um, written some lines of poetry which would talk about how I fooled Muhammad, and he would brag about it and he would have like, he would hire uh, singers to basically sing the lines of poetry and things like that. So this was somebody that was twisted to say the least. So <clears throat> when the Muslims entered Mecca, him knowing what he had done was very severe uh, and unforgivable, he ran into the Kaaba and grabbed the curtains of the Kaaba. Now somebody, also the question, the muhaddithun asked the question, him grabbing the curtains of the Kaaba, can that be interpreted as him becoming Muslim? Right, is there any 
validity there. So the what the muhaddithun mentioned is that the grabbing of the curtains of the Kaaba was something كان من عادات المشركين وكان من رسوم الجاهليه that this was from the customs of the jahiliyyah and this was something that the mushrikun used to practice and this was basically done even at jahili times and it was a way to try to seek amnesty to try to seek protection and so the prophet of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam he they came to him the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam they came to him and they asked him that um, what about him if what, what about this man if he goes and he grabs the curtains of the Kaaba and the Prophet that I will not grant that person amnesty, not whether he's outside of the Haram or in the Haram, whether he's outside of Makkah or in Makkah. But rather the Prophet said, kill him even if you find him hanging on to the curtains of the Kaaba. Um, and so basically he was taken and he was executed at that time. There is a little bit of a discussion now. <clears throat> there are two things that are mentioned. Two things that are discussed. Two mas'alas, if you will. Two uh, issues of fiqh that are discussed here that are a little bit lengthy, but I'll summarize the issues. The first issue that's asked is, what about the sanctity of the haram, the Kaaba? The Prophet of Allah wasallam, in a narration, in a hadith, he says... That لا يحل لأحدكم أن يحمل بمكة السلاح. The Prophet ﷺ says it is not permissible for any one of you to carry weapons into Mecca. In another narration, the Prophet of Allah uh, specific, so the first narration that, yes, that's the first, let's work with that hadith. The Prophet ﷺ says, it is not permissible for any of you to carry weapons into Mecca itself. And then of course there's further narrations which establish the sanctity and the sacredness of the Kaaba itself. So how was somebody ordered to be executed when they were, or, or arrested when they were in the Kaaba, in the Haram? And then further, how was somebody executed while they were in the sacred safe, safe space of Mecca? So of course this was the exception to the rule. This is the exception, not the rule. Alright, and this was because it was a time of war, it was a very serious scenario, and this was somebody who had committed a crime and was trying to use this as a loophole. And so from this, the scholars actually extrapolate that if there is a convicted criminal who runs into Mecca, specifically on, uh, with the agenda of trying to escape you know, retribution or any type of consequences of their action, then at that time, as in a minimal capacity as possible, as minimally as possible, that they are allowed the use of force to be able to go and apprehend that person and then carry out whatever punishment needs to be carried out. Alright, so that is permissible in that type of scenario. Of course, the usage of force should be minimized. That should not be turned into an excuse for the invasion of a military force into Mecca. But nevertheless, there an exception can be made in these types of scenarios, obviously. Otherwise, this would create the most bizarre uh, loophole in the world. Uh, Mecca would just become flooded with criminals. Um, so that's the first uh, issue in terms of fiqh. The second issue that is brought up here is that 
<clears throat> the Prophet ﷺ enters into Mecca wearing a helmet. Does anyone, can anyone point out to me what that lets you know? If the Prophet ﷺ enters Mecca wearing a helmet, what does that tell you? State of war, anything else in particular? Yes? No? Anything pertaining to fiqh, anyone? Who did? Ihram. Very good. Ihram. <clears throat> so, brothers who have, uh, are familiar with the rules of Ihram, uh, when going for Hajj and Umrah, being in a state of Ihram, you are not allowed to cover your head in a state of Ihram. You have to uncover your head in the state of ihram. So the fact that the Prophet ﷺ was wearing a helmet, and later on when he removed his helmet, he put his turban on, as I mentioned, that tells you that the Prophet ﷺ was not in a state of ihram. He was not in a state of ihram. Why is that even relevant? Because there are narrations where the Prophet ﷺ emphasized that anyone who goes to Mecca should go to Mecca in a state of ihram. What that actually means is that the Prophet ﷺ said that if you are an outsider, you are an afaqi, what is called in fiqh, in fiqh terminology, it was called an afaqi. You are not from Mecca itself. You are not a resident of, Mac of Mecca, but you are an outsider. You are not from Mecca. So if you are an outsider who visits Mecca, as we know about the masjid, that when you enter the masjid, it is from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. He said, the right of the masjid is that you perform two rakahs. Tahiyatul Masjid. The Prophet ﷺ said that when you enter upon a gathering, it is the rights of that gathering that you say salam. Right? So there are certain rights of certain places and situations. The Prophet ﷺ said when you enter into your home, say salam. That is the right of the home and the family to be greeted with salam, to be entered with salam. Right? So there are these types of rulings. Similarly, one of the rights of the haram, the city of Mecca, is that when you enter Mecca, when you enter the city of Mecca, you should perform a hajj or a umrah. Right? So always perform some type of religious rites to uh, give Mecca its due, to give Mecca its right. So that Mecca does not become a tourist attraction as all other tourist attractions. We just don't go see and look at the Kaaba and say, oh, very nice, and then leave. No, Mecca is not a museum. Uh, and Mecca is not an art gallery, right? But rather, Mecca is a sacred place of worship. Haram, right? It has hurma, it has sanctity, sacredness. It is a house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so worship has to be established in Mecca. So the Prophet ﷺ emphasized that whenever you enter Mecca from outside, always enter with ihram. At the minimum be doing an umrah. Right? And an umrah is not something that's very difficult to do. It's not very lengthy. So at the very minimum do an umrah. Now based off of that ruling, now we find this narration that the Prophet ﷺ enters Mecca without the state of ihram. So how do we reconcile that? Obviously, it should be pretty common sense. This is the exception again. Because of a state of war. And the Prophet ﷺ said that this is the exception. But there is a difference of opinion amongst the fuqaha. Imam Shafi'i rahimullahu ta'ala, uh, the uh, Imam Malik as well, the school of Medina as well, is of the opinion that someone can enter Mecca if they have a reason or a cause 
uh, they have some need and necessity, they can enter Makkah without a state of ihram. It is not necessary to perform Umrah every single time. At the very least, it would be necessary to go by the haram and at least establish some form of ibadah at the haram. Whether it's praying two rakahs, whether it's just doing tawaf, some type of ibadah should be established at the haram and that would be okay and permissible. The ahnaf, Abu Hanifa rahimullah ta'ala and the scholars of Iraq are of the opinion that no, um, it is a requirement that you should enter Makkah. This was a state of war, this is the exception. How many more times is that ever going to happen? Outside of that, normal people, what they have to understand is that whenever you visit Makkah, be in Ihram, and at the minimum do an Umrah. And Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal also has the same opinion. The next hadith in the chapter, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عِيسَى إِبْنُ أَحْمَدْ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَبْدُ اللَّهِ إِبْنُ وَهْبٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مَالِكُ بْنُ أَنَسْ عَنْ إِبْنِ شِهَابٍ عَنْ أَنَسْ إِبْنِ مَالِكٍ رضي الله تعالى عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم دخل مكة عام الفتح وعلى رأسه المغفر قال فلما نزعه جاءه رجل فقال له ابن خطل متعلق بأسابر الكعبة فقال أقتلوه قال ابن شهاب وبلغني أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لم يكن يومئذ محرما Anas bin Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam entered Makkah, the year of the conquest of Makkah, and he was wearing a helmet on his head. He says that when he removed the helmet, a man came to him and he says that Ibn Khattal has grabbed on to the curtains of the Kaaba to try to plead uh, amnesty. And the Prophet said to him that execute him, kill him. Ibn Shihab, he says that I also received, I was also informed that the Messenger of Allah on that day was not in a state of ihram, and we talked about that particular issue. The next chapter, chapter number 17. Babu ma jaa fi amamati Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The chapter about the turban of the, the description of the turban of the Prophet The first hadith, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدُ بْنُ بَشَّارِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَبْدُ الرَّحْمَنِ بْنُ مَهْدِي عَنْ حَمَّادِ بْنِ سَلِمَا وَحَدَّثَنَا مَحْمُودُ بْنُ غَيْلَانِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا وَكِيعٌ عَنْ حَمَّادِ بْنِ سَلِمَا عَنْ أبي الزبير عن جابر رضي الله تعالى عنه قال دخل النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم مكة يوم الفتح وعليه عمامة سوداء Jabir radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam entered Makkah on the day of the conquest of Makkah and on him, meaning he was wearing a black turban, imamatun sauda. He was wearing a black turban. I explained how to reconcile the two, that when he entered actually, he was wearing the helmet and then later on, when he was first seen by many people, he was wearing the turban at that time. The next narration, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا إِبْنُ أَبِي عُمَرَ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا سُفْيَانَ عَنْ مُسَاوِرٍ الْوَرَّاقِ عَنْ جَعْفَرِ بْنِ عَمْرِ بْنِ حُرَيْثِ عَنْ أَبِيهِ عَمْرُ بْنُ حُرَيْثِ قَالَ رَأَيْتُ عَلَى رَأْسِ لَرْسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ عِمَامَةً سَوْدَاءً Amr bin Hurayth, radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates that the Prophet of Allah, that I saw on the head of the Messenger of Allah a black turban. I saw a black turban on the head of the Prophet The third hadith, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مَحْمُودُ بْنُ غَيْلَانِ 
ويوسف بن عيسى قال حدثنا وكيع عن مساور الوراق عن جعفر بن عمرو بن حريث عن به أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم خطب الناس وعليه عمامة سوداء عمرو بن حريث also relates that I that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم addressed the people and the Messenger of Allah وسلم, addressed the people and he was wearing a black turban. The next narration قال حدثنا هارون بن إسحاق الهمداني قال حدثنا يحيى ابن محمد المدني عن عبد الله عن عبد العزيز بن محمد عن عبيد الله بن عمر عن نافع عن ابن عمر رضي الله تعالى عنهما قال كان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا اعتم سدل عمامته عمامته بين كتفيه عبد الله بن عمر رضي الله تعالى عنهما says that when the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم would wear an imama a turban he would hang the tail of the turban between his shoulder blades on his back and then the last narration of this chapter, um, there's an extra comment in some of the versions of Imam Tirmidhi's book. Nafi'ah, qala Nafi'ah, wa kana ibn Umar yaf'alu thalika, qala Ubaidullah wa ra'aytu al-Qasim ibn Muhammad wa saliman yaf'alani thalika. Nafi'ah says that Ibn Umar used to do the same thing, and Ubaidullah, the son of Nafi'ah, says, I saw al-Qasim ibn Muhammad, who was again one of the tabi'un of Medina, one of the scholars of Medina, was Salim. Salim was also another of the scholars of Medina. They used to wear it the same way. And then the last hadith of the chapter, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا يُوسُفُ بْنُ عِيسَى قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا وَكِيعٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُو سُلَيْمَانٌ وَهُوَ عَبْدُ الرَّحْمَانِ بْنُ الْغَسِيلِ عَنِ عِكْرِمَا عَنِ ابْنِ عَبَّاسٍ رضي الله تعالى عنهم أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم خطب الناس Ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Abbas reports that the Messenger of Allah addressed the people and he was wearing a dark turban. The word dasma, to explain just the word here, um, the word dasma in the Arabic language refers to something that is very dark in color. The, the literal meaning of the word, if you look up the root of the word, it could confuse someone. The word desam can almost refer to something becoming kind of uh, dirty or filthy, kind of oily. Um, but of course, <clears throat> that is not how the turban of the Prophet is being described as at all. Uh, but rather what the Arabs would do is more conversationally speaking, even classically, the word desma would be used to refer to something that was very dark in color. Right? So it was almost synonymous with black. But maybe he felt that it wasn't like pure black, like jet black. Uh, but it maybe was a little bit light. It could have been that it was worn out. You know, if you have black material and it's been washed a number of times, so it kind of loses like some of its, um, some of its definition. Right? It starts to fade a little bit, get a little bit worn out. So it's possible that the turban of the Prophet was a little worn out, and that's why he's describing it as dasma and not sauda. The other thing is that I read the narration where it says imamatun. Uh, in the text you have in front of you, it says the word isabatun. Wa isabatun 
mutaradifun li imama. It is synonymous with the word imama. Isaba literally refers to something that you tie. It literally means a piece of cloth that has been tied. And so that is what they would also, the Arabs would also call it imama. So there are multiple narrations. Some say imama, some say isaba. Both are correct and both are authentic. Now to, um, another thing I wanted to explain about this particular narration itself, there's two things that are very fascinating here. Number one is the fact that if you look in the chain of narration, it talks about uh, uh, it says حدثن, if you look at the chain of narration, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا يُوسُفُ بْنُ عِيسَى قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا وَكِيعٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُو سُلَيْمَانٌ وَهُوَ عَبْدُ الرَّحْمَانِ ابْنُ الْغَسِيلِ وَهُوَ عَبْدُ الرَّحْمَانِ ابْنُ الْغَسِيلِ So this Abu Sulaiman, his name was Abdul Rahman, and his laqab, he was known by the title of Ibn al-Ghasil. Why was he called? Ghasil literally means the one who has been washed, the one who has been bathed. Al-Ghasil bima'an al-Maghsul. The one who has been bathed, the one who has been washed. Why was he called the son of the one who was bathed? So his name is actually Abdul Rahman. Uh, his kunya was Abu Sulaiman, and his full name is Abdurrahman ibn Sulaiman ibn Abdullah ibn Hanzala. Ibn Hanzala. He is the great grandson. He is the great grandson of Hanzala radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Hanzala radiallahu ta'ala anhu, for those who are not familiar, was a Sahabi who was martyred in the battle of Uhud. He was martyred in the Battle of Uhud. I didn't touch on it earlier today because his, this mention of him was coming up in uh, the narration, so I thought we could talk about it here. Hanzala radiallahu ta'ala anhu um, was basically at home in Medina. And he was at home uh, in Medina. He was actually um, in, he had just now uh, had been intimate with his spouse, with his wife. When the announcement was made, when he heard people calling in the streets, that the Prophet ﷺ is leaving to Uhud. The Prophet ﷺ is leaving to Uhud. That it's time now to go for Uhud. And he heard the announcement and he was in his home. And he basically, just when he heard the announcement, he was in such a hurry, he actually did not recall that he needed to take a ghusl, a bath of purification, because having been intimate with his wife, and so he just put his clothes on, he strapped his armor on, grabbed his sword, and he ran out. And he was one of the sahaba who was martyred, who was shaheed in the battle of Uhud. Now, he was martyred, so the fiqh of the martyr, the shaheed, so when we talk about a shaheed, this is a longer discussion, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail. Uh, when we talk about shahada, martyrdom, a shaheed, a martyr, there, there is shaheed haqiqi and shaheed hukmi. A shahada haqiqiyah and shahada hukmiyah. There is a literal martyrdom and then there is a, uh, those who receive the reward of martyrdom. Those who receive the reward of being a shaheed. A literal shaheed is one who is killed in the act of fighting in the battlefield. The ruling for the shaheed haqiqi is that his body is not washed. If his clothes are still on his body, then his body does not even need to be shrouded. But he is buried as he is. Kamakan. He is buried as he is. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned the benefit and the purpose of that. 
that that person will come on the day of judgment before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with their wounds very fresh and still flowing with blood, with their clothes in the condition that they are in, as a testament and as a proof that, oh Allah, this is the sacrifice I made for you. And so the body is not washed and the body is not shrouded. If there's no need to shroud it. Of course, like we talked about today, in the case of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala, his clothes had been ripped off of his body. So then you had to, for the purpose of respectfulness, they had to cover his body. That's a different case and scenario. Um, of course, Shahada Hukmi, I won't get into details here, but there's dozens of narrations where the Prophet says, somebody who dies defending his family, like an invader, an intruder into the home, and dies defending their family, that person is shaheed. Somebody who dies protecting their home, their property, that person is like somebody who's getting robbed and then trying to defend their property, they get... Um, they, they are killed, that person is a shaheed. Somebody who dies in a flood is a shaheed. Somebody who dies of organ failure is a shaheed. Somebody who dies of an incurable disease is a shaheed. Somebody who dies in a tragic accident is a shaheed. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned so many different general scenarios that it almost points to the fact that almost anyone dying um, in a number of different scenarios, as long as somebody was not, did not die committing a crime, it's as if the Prophet is saying, reward of a shaheed, reward of a shaheed, reward of a shaheed. And that's the generosity, the kindness, the mercy of the Prophet And the lesson that the scholars extract from that, to indulge just for a minute, the lessons the scholars extract from that is a tabshir. That the importance of, you know, the importance of being positive, the importance of positivity, that we don't need to worry about limiting the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Well, brother, you know, I'm not sure if we can say that that person gets that type of reward. No, 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 you have no business. Somebody says, oh, somebody did this, this, this. Somebody was memorizing Quran and then they were trying and then they're really not able to. Will that person still get the reward of being a hafid of the Quran? Inshallah. Well, actually, no, they have to finish. And they have to recite Surah Al-Nas in a masjid full of people and then eat a laddu afterwards. <laughs> right? Then and only then will, does a person count as a hafiz. Like, preposterous, ridiculous. It's garbage. Right? There's no need to limit the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Inna rahmati wasi'at kulla shay. Allah says, my mercy encompasses everything. Don't limit the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's more than enough room for everyone. And the Prophet ﷺ practically demonstrated that, that it was almost as if anytime a death happened in Medina, anytime the Prophet ﷺ was informed of someone's death, he said, oh, that person died in an accident, فَهُوَ shahidun. Oh, that person, he died of an organ failure, فَهُوَ shahidun. Oh, that person died and drowned, فَهُوَ shahidun. Subhanallah. You see, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the mercy of the Prophet and therefore the mercy of our deen. Alright, so that is the general ruling for a shaheed. So getting back to the story that I was mentioning, Al-Ghasil, Hanzala, Hanzala radiallahu ta'ala anhu, there's only one exception. So those rules of a shaheed that I mentioned that where you don't wash or shroud the body, that is only for the shaheed haqiqi, the one in the battlefield. Not for any other shaheed who gets a reward of a shaheed, inshallah. Right? That is only for the shaheed haqiqi. There is an exception to that rule that if it can be confirmed that that shaheed was in need of a ghusl, a bath of purification, 
then it should be given to that shaheed. However, this being a very private issue, him having been intimate with his wife, this is of course not public knowledge. The Sahaba were people of dignity and modesty. So this was not public knowledge, so nobody knew. So when they were basically taking the bodies of the shuhada to bury them, the Prophet ﷺ looked over at Hanzala body and he said, Subhanallah. Subhanallah. And the Sahaba were like, what's wrong, O Messenger of Allah? He says, why is it that I see angels bathing Hanzala? Why is it that I see angels bathing Hanzala? Some Sahaba even testify, there's some weak narration, but some even Sahaba say, we saw water dripping from his hair. And the Prophet ﷺ called him Ghasilul Malaika, the one bathed by the angels. And so when the Prophet ﷺ went back to Medina, he inquired, of course, privately, he inquired from the wife of Hanzala, is there anything you can tell me? Or basically, you know, anything you, you can tell me about Hanzala before he came out to Uhud? She said, oh Messenger of Allah, nothing really out of the ordinary. The only thing that I would be able to tell you is that Hanzala was in need of a ghusl. Hanzala was in need of a ghusl. And he left before he had the chance to take the ghusl because he was so eager to come and assist in the battle of Uhud. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, now I understand why the angels bathed Hanzala. So this Abdurrahman who is in the chain of narration, he is the great grandson of Hanzala radiallahu ta'ala anhu and therefore his laqab was Ibn al-Ghasil. So that tells you that the children and the offspring of Hanzala radiallahu ta'ala anhu used to be addressed with the respectful title as the children of Ghasil al-Malaika, the one bathed by the angels as a sign of honoring their, the Sahabi of the Prophet ﷺ and his great sacrifice. The other thing about this particular narration that is noteworthy, that should be mentioned, is that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, Ibn Abbas says that he was addressing the people and he was wearing this turban. There are more extended narrations which actually tell us when this was. This was a couple of days before the Messenger of Allah ﷺ passed away. The, this was not like the khutbah of Jumu'ah, but he just addressed the people. And what happened was that the Prophet ﷺ was brought. He had to be brought. He had to hold two people and come. And he came to the masjid and he was sat down on the steps, on the mimbar. He was sat down on the mimbar, the steps. Um, and he sat there and everyone congregated. Everyone was brought together. And the Prophet ﷺ addressed everyone. And he specifically, there's a narration in Bukhari that specifically what he spoke about on that day was the Prophet ﷺ spoke about the virtues of the Ansar. He spoke about the virtues of the Ansar. And he talked to, he gave nasiha and advice. Because the Prophet ﷺ, as Abu Bakr ﷺ informs us, part of his wasiyah was that he wanted the leadership to be with the Quraysh, he wanted the leadership to be with the Muhajirun. So the Prophet ﷺ specifically mentioned this, that however, do not ever, let alone abuse, forget about abuse, do not ever take the Ansar for granted. These are selfless people. He said these are selfless people. They will give themselves up, they will sacrifice themselves for your sake. They are selfless people, generous people, kind-hearted people, gracious people. Do not ever take them for granted. Do not ever take them for granted. So he spoke about the virtues of the Ansar, and 
the narration says, Imam Bukhari says in the narration, or he relates in the narration, That was the last time the Prophet ever sat on his minbar. He never ascended the minbar ever again after that. So that's something really remarkable about this particular narration and where this narration is from. Now, um, a little bit of just understanding about the turban of the Prophet ﷺ. Of course, a word in the Arabic language is imama. That, of course, again, comes from the root word, which means to wrap. And in the Arabic language, the imama is ma yulafu ala rasi. It is what is tied on the head. It's called an imama. And so this was a practice of the Prophet ﷺ, a sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, uh, particularly when the Prophet ﷺ would stand up to pray, he was very particular about it. Um, there's some discussion about, again, is will this be called a sunnah, um, one that is just a historical fact about the Prophet ﷺ, or will this be identified as a noteworthy or recommended practice? a recommended practice of the Prophet ﷺ. The scholars do have a difference of opinion on the issue. Basically what they say is that it's not necessarily an emphasized practice. If someone does it, they definitely do get the reward of uh, emulating the Prophet ﷺ. However, um, it is not as emphasized as maybe some of the other sunan of the Prophet ﷺ, but it does nevertheless hold significance and hold virtue because of the of how the Prophet ﷺ talked about it and how particular he was about it. There's even some narrations which allude to the fact that wearing of the turban or wearing of the imama was something that many of the Prophets wore, other Prophets wore it as well. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ, there's a lot of different discussion in certain narrations. Uh, some scholars have brought about how long the imama of the Prophet ﷺ was. Was it long? Was it short? How long was it? Um, some mentioned it was 7 feet long. Some mentioned that it was 12 feet long. Some mentioned no, it was 6 feet long or 5 feet long. How long was the turban of the Prophet ﷺ? Ibn Qayyim rahimullah ta'ala after going through all the narration says there is no authentic account, there is no authentic narration. Ibn Hajar rahimullah ta'ala in Fathul Bari also comments saying that there is no authentic account of how long the turban of the Prophet was. However, Imam Nawawi does choose to mention that while we do not know authentically from any narrations about how long his turban was, he says, I do find that the Sahaba generally would have two types of turbans. The Sahaba would have two lengths of turbans. Some of them would wear a shorter turban that was basically about six feet in length. So it was not as bulky when wrapped on the head. And then some of the Sahaba would wear a turban that was 12 feet in length so that it would be a little bit larger and a little bit more bulkier after it was tied on the head. And maybe this was just simply because during the summertime they would tie the smaller one and during the wintertime they would tie the larger one where they would actually wrap it even lower down on their head to cover their uh, ears and things like that to protect them from the cold as well. So they had a very practical usage for it. There's some other narrations as well. So then there's a discussion about um, what color was the turban of the Prophet ﷺ. Obviously Imam Tirmidhi in this book, in this uh, chapter, he brings narrations which all talk about, the first two which talk about Fathul Makkah, the conquest of Makkah, um, or rather the first one, and then the second one says he was giving uh, the khutbah, that is also actually from Fathul Makkah as well. Um, and then the last one is just, um, from the masjid of the Prophet or the first few are um, the first three, excuse me. 
The first three are from the conquest of Mecca. And then the last one that we saw was from Medina before he passed away. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the particular color. There are narrations that the angels, when they were observed in the Battle of Badr, they were wearing, some narrations say green turbans, some narrations mentioned that they were wearing yellow colored turbans. Um, there's a narration about the night of Al-Qadr, Laylatul Qadr, that also the angels come down wearing green turbans on that night, excuse me, as well. The Prophet وسلم, is seen in a number of these narrations wearing black turbans, but at the same time, there are other narrations where the Prophet emphasized generally the wearing of white. And if you look back at that, he gave very general advice about wearing white. And it was observed that the Prophet used to wear a white turban and used to recommend the wearing of a white turban to the Sahaba. What is extracted from that is the general practice of the Prophet was to wear a white or lighter colored turban. The black turban was worn by the Prophet ﷺ specifically on Fatih Mecca because, again, it was a situation of possibly uh, of war. It was a possible situation of war. So that's why the Prophet ﷺ wore the black turban. As for the end of his life, him wearing that turban, the black turban, again, the darker turban. Again, the reason why it's described as the sma because it was very worn out. So the Prophet ﷺ basically was wearing that because... It was, the Prophet ﷺ was ill, he was sick, and so he was generally uh, just wearing, even Aisha, we're going to see it in the next chapter, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, when she presents the clothes of the Prophet ﷺ that he was wearing before he passed away, they were very old, worn out pairs of clothes. So the Prophet ﷺ, to be in a very humble state, and in a, very, uh, in a state of humility, when he passed away, he was actually wearing some older clothes, some worn out clothes. Because he did not want to leave this world wearing, you know, shiny new clothes. But he wanted to be wearing some of the older worn out clothes. Right? Basically to implementing. That the life of the hereafter is better and longer lasting. Right? So that is maybe why the Prophet chose to wear that turban on that day. Was because it was more worn out material. And he wanted to wear something that was worn out. That's what he was wearing. Wallahu ta'ala alamu bis-sawab. So nevertheless, what we do find is that the Prophet ﷺ did either white or a black turban. It's authentically proven that the Prophet ﷺ wore those colors. The next uh, topic that they, the next issue about the turban of the Prophet ﷺ is basically that the, how did he exactly wrap the turban? Again, we don't have any type of precise detail how we used to wrap the turban. The only thing that we do know is that the Prophet ﷺ did not used to wear uh, the turban in a messy way. It was not messy. It was actually worn very nice and neat, tied very nice and tight. And the Prophet ﷺ would not just kind of wrinkle up the cloth, you know, kind of bunch up the cloth and just wrap it around his head so it looked like you're just kind of wrapping like wires like how you would wrap up a, uh, an extension cord. That's not how the Prophet wore a turban, right? But the Prophet was always dignified in his presence. He was always extremely presentable, right? So he used to very nicely tie it on his head. Um, the other thing is that when he would tie the turban on his head, what about the, the tail of the turban? Because oftentimes we've seen that there's a tail. So 
first and foremost, did it, the, there are three narrations about the Prophet ﷺ. One narration mentions that the turban of the Prophet ﷺ, he was seen having tied a turban that had no tail. That when he tied the turban, he completely wrapped it up around his head. And this is what, how the Prophet ﷺ would tie his turban when sometimes he was kind of doing some work. When he was doing work or something, then he would wrap it up completely so that it wouldn't flop around or get in his way. Alright, and it wouldn't disrupt him. So he would wrap it up completely. He was seen wearing it like that. Fil amal, in doing action, like, like working. Fil shughal. The second way the Prophet ﷺ was seen tying the actual turban was that he would, or actually I should say there are four ways. One other way that he was seen tying a turban is that he would start by placing the end of the cloth on his head. He would wrap it all the way up. And then the end of the cloth, he would leave a little bit extra hanging and he would tuck it into the top. So there would only be one piece of cloth hanging, one tail hanging, but it would hang down from the top. That was also seen as well. The third way that he was seen tying his turban is that he would actually leave the tail hanging from before. So it was from the bottom and then he would tie it up on top and then tuck it in. And then he wouldn't have a second piece of cloth hanging, there was no second tail. It was just one tail and it was at the bottom hanging down. And then the Prophet ﷺ was also seen where he had one tail at the bottom and then he would wrap it up and some extra cloth would be left and he would tuck it in and therefore he had two tails or two pieces of cloth hanging down from a servant, one from the bottom, one down from on top. Um, the gist of it is, the summary of it is, is that the Prophet ﷺ tied it in different ways, however it was convenient for him at that moment. It was not something very strategic or very planned, but the Prophet ﷺ wore it very casually, as clothes should be worn casually. Alright, so the Prophet ﷺ would wear it very casually. Of course, it was very presentable, it was clean, it was very nice, it was very dignified, very elegant, and sophisticated in its appearance. Nevertheless, he, wore, he tied it in that sense very casually. Um, the last issue here that is mentioned about the turban of the Prophet ﷺ, and that's why Imam Tirmidhi in the fourth narration brings a narration to demonstrate it, is when he did have a tail or a piece of cloth hanging from the turban, then how did it exactly hang? Right? Where did the Prophet ﷺ place that piece of cloth? Where did he place the tail? So it says that the norm was that it would basically fall on his back between his shoulder blades. And that as well has been seen that some narrations say that the longest we ever saw it was basically a foot in arm's length. That was the longest that we ever saw it. Um, and then of course when he didn't have the tail at all, the, he didn't leave a piece of cloth hanging at all. Um, and then the shortest that we ever saw it was like the, the, the width of a hand. So he sometimes kept it very short, right? Sometimes he kept it very short. And sometimes the Prophet ﷺ kept it lengthier or longer as well. Um, so both were seen. And as for most of the time, he would, it would, he would have it on his back. There are some different discussions. Some of the scholars say that no, it's good to leave it over the right shoulder. He used to prefer the right side. Some of the scholars mentioned leaving it on the left side uh, because that's the side that the heart is on. So there's some discussion about that as well. However, the hadith of the Prophet mentions that the it did obviously very naturally fall forward sometimes and it would end up on his shoulder. But the Prophet had a habit of moving it back to his back and he would keep it hanging on his back or laying flat on his back. Wallahu ta'ala alamu bis-sawab. The last thing is that uh, Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala mentions 
uh, in his book, Zadul Ma'ad, that all the ahadith that specifically, the key word here is specific, all the narrations that make very, very specific mention uh, about the rewards of wearing a turban, the reward of wearing the turban, the imama, in and of itself is from the fact that the Prophet used to wear it. And he so frequently was seen wearing it. Um, that that in and of itself is its virtue. But all the other narrations that are oftentimes brought or mentioned, such as Salatun bi imamatin khayrun min khamsin wa ishirina salatun bila imama, that salah prayer wearing an imama is 25 times more virtuous than prayer without a turban or imama, or Juma'atun bi imamatin khayrun min sabirina Juma'atan bila imama, that the day of Friday, Basically, performing Jumu'ah prayer with an imama is 70 times superior to performing Jumu'ah prayer without the turban or the imama. All of these narrations, majority of them are actually fabrications. Um, they are uh, Imam Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala has compiled them together in, his, in a book, Al-Masnu'a fi Ma'rifat al-Hadith al-Mawdu'a. Um, and those that are not Completely fabrications are designated as being extremely, extremely weak. Wallahu ta'ala alamu bisawab. Of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So we'll go ahead and stop and pause here, inshallah. Um, also, overall, I guess before I just kind of conclude it, uh, the last thing is that the Prophet ﷺ was seen wearing the imama. He was also seen without an imama. And he was also seen sometimes... Uh, just you know, covering his head with something that looked kind of like a cap. Um, so the Prophet was seen in all different manners as well. All right, any questions? Yes, Amr. Ah, very good. I actually forgot to mention that. That's a very good point. So Imam Tirmidhi rahimahullah ta'ala, the methodology of the muhaddithun was that they didn't like to mention things. Uh, basically, they would kind of uh, cor correlate some ahadith to other ahadith. So the fact that he mentioned the narration earlier that the Prophet ﷺ recommended the wearing of white... So by means of that narration, he established that's the norm. He only brought the ahadith where he wore black turbans to demonstrate the fact that that is also permissible, or that is also from the sunnah. Yes? Okay, um, I was just wondering, so in terms of turbans, um, like today, the Sikh people are identified with turbans. So can you say that like, maybe it might not be best to wear it, given that like, it would identify you as like, maybe non it's a very difficult issue. Um, it's a topic and a subject of a lot of discussion amongst the scholars and particularly the fuqaha, uh, that what is to be done in a situation, in a scenario, where something that is, you know, from the practice of the Prophet or something that is particularly the Prophet Some scholars, you know, they talk about the fact that the imama was like from the shi'ar of the Prophet that is something that he prominently used to wear and it was observed about him. 
So what is to be done in a situation where something like that basically becomes a very common practice of you know, another religious community? Um, then what, to be, well, what is to be done in that type of situation? It's very difficult to say. Um, the scholars do mention that if there is a place that is a place or a situation or maybe it's a particular season, um, where that is their dominant practice, then maybe only in that place or only in that season, it's best to avoid it as to not create any confusion. Um, particularly in the case of the imama, that is exactly why the scholars do place a lot of emphasis on the fact of the leaving of the, the tail of the turban, that that uh, differentiates it um, and the overall the shape and how we exactly tie it. That's why wearing a smaller turban and leaving a tail of the turban is something that is emphasized by our ulama today um, as to differentiate it from how maybe other religions might also wear a turban. Khuram? Right. Uh, so is that the same tilaw between uh, imama and a cat? And, and also the second follow-up question is in terms of salah, did Prophet Sallallahu ever do salah without any covering? Because right. Sometimes it's mandatory in some regions, but other regions in the world it's optional. Right. Um, so um, I, I like the way you stated that. So uh, <laughs> it's very, very diplomatic, mashallah. <laughs> I'm going to have you write my emails for me. So um, the... There is reward for always, you know, trying to emulate the Prophet to the best of our ability. Um, that being said, you know, if somebody does wear it for the purpose of emulating the Prophet whether it be just a covering of the head or tying the imama, then that would definitely have reward for that person in it. Um, it's not something that is, you know, um, as I mentioned before, the scholars don't even refer to it as an emphasized sunnah. Um, so there's obviously no sin in not wearing it. As for wearing, not covering his head when praying, it is actually proven that the Prophet ﷺ was seen on a number of occasions, most prominently within his home particularly. Um, only once or twice was he seen praying outside of his home without the imama on. The interesting thing that when they say he never prayed without covering his head, he never led the prayer in the masjid without covering of his head. So while that fact is there, that also can be understood and needs to rather be understood that that was the Prophet ﷺ also observing the fact that in that position of Imam, he was in that formal position of leadership of the community. Right? So that was almost kind of like a dress code um, in that position of leadership. That was more so the understanding of that. So there is no sin on somebody even praying, like men praying without the covering of their head. Um, but nevertheless, again, once somebody is in the position of leadership, it is appropriate, recommended for that person to then go ahead and cover their head, to just uh, respect that position of the mimbar, to respect that position of the musalla and that position of leadership. Mm. 
Right. So there are some discussions in that there are certain types of turban, whether it be a particular color, uh, or whether it be of a particular design, or whether it be a particular method or manner of wrapping it, um, that become kind of um, standardized practices of different groups of people. Maybe the people of a region, uh, maybe it's the scholars of a particular region, uh, things like that. So again, if that just kind of becomes something that is a um, kind of a dress code or almost like an alumni type of thing, that, that's permissible. There's no harm or foul in that, as long as no specific reward becomes attached with it that we don't see any type of virtue or significance to it, um, that would, is what would become problematic. As far as when they talk about there being a particular ijazah for the method of tying a particular turban, Wallahu ta'ala a'alam, in my research or my experience, I haven't found that to be something very sound. Um, you know, many of the, you know, and, and of course those ijazat basically go back to certain family members, descendants of the Prophet or they go back to particular scholars. They do not go back to the Messenger of Allah himself. However, even the narrations, the majority of what's called al-musalsalat, most of the ahadith that go all the way back to the Prophet and have a particular practice or a physical action attached to it, the majority of those narrations are not authentic either. Majority of the musalsalat are weak. The, the, the wording of the hadith will be sound, but the action associated with it will actually end up being weak. And that's simply based on the fact that these things just did not, um, that either maybe the Prophet never really intended for the action, to become a part of the hadith itself. Of course, it was done out of love for the Prophet It's not a bad thing. It was done out of love for the Prophet an emulation of the Prophet um, But nevertheless, it was never intended by the Prophet to be a part of the hadith itself. So majority of them did not maintain authenticity. Um, so suffice to say that usually things of that nature are not authentically all the way linked back. Right, absolutely. Uh, very interesting. Two very good questions. So first and foremost, of course, we understand that, and, and the scholars talk about this in a lot of detail. Uh, Ibn Qayyim rahimullah ta'ala has a huge discussion on this in Zad al-Ma'ad. Um, that we do have to understand that the mannerism of general clothing, like the izar and the rida, um, the imama, things like that, were the general practice of the Arabs of that time. Right, and so this was worn by other people, Muslims and non-Muslims alike at that time. That is significant and that is to be noted. However, at the same time, if the Prophet ﷺ did adopt it, then it's as if he's validating it. He's saying this is okay. There were certain things that were worn by people at that time that the Prophet ﷺ did not adopt. So as if to say that that's not okay. But nevertheless, what we do arrive at the conclusion is that generally speaking with clothing, like we talked about earlier, that there are a few very specific rules, like we talked about in terms of modesty and how much of, they, of your body they cover, um, being attained permissibly, uh, men not wearing silk. And basically outside of that, um, the general ruling with clothing is permissibility. The second question is that, is there anything about making masah wiping over the turban? There is a narration 
One singular narration again, where it's observed that the Prophet ﷺ wiped over his amama, imama. However, Imam al-Tahawi, rahimullahu ta'ala, Imam Tahawi in his book Ma'anul Athar, he brings multiple different narrations of that same incident from different vantage points where the Sahaba actually notes that the turban of the Prophet ﷺ, when he sat down to make wudu, he had pushed his turban back. When the Prophet ﷺ sat down to do wudu, he had pushed his turban to the back of his head. And so when the Prophet ﷺ actually wiped over his head, he wiped over the front part of his head. Masaha ala nasiyatihi. He wiped over the front part of the head. And as we know from the fiqh of wudu, that wiping over even the, the front part of the head is sufficient. It suffices, it fulfills the faridah. It fulfills a faridah. I mean, Imam Shafi'i, rahimullahu ta'ala, is of the opinion that even wiping over, you know, a few hairs fulfills the faridah. Um, but nevertheless, the wiping over, even this portion of the head will fulfill the faridah. And because they were traveling, because they were in journey, masaha ala nasiyatihi wa khufayhi, the hadith of Mughira bin Shu'aba, they were traveling. So that's why the Prophet ﷺ, at home, he would go ahead and just remove his turban. Um, and then he would make masah properly. That's why the ahadith narrated about his wudu mentioned him. Masaha ala ra'sihi. He wiped over his entire head. Um, but this time he was traveling, so maybe he didn't have a place to put his, you know, the, the turban down. And it could be that, and Mughira bin Shu'aba was basically pouring the water for the Prophet ﷺ to be able to make wudu. So there was nobody to really hold the turban. So in that situation, the Prophet ﷺ pushed it to the back of his head and more minimally did his masah where he just wiped over the front of the head. All right, inshallah. It's late, let's call it a night. Jazakumullah khairah. Yes. It's okay. Sure, sure, sure. Shahid, the root of the word shahida means to witness, to be present. Hadara, shahida, he was present. And so from that, the Arabs, they would call somebody who died in a noteworthy cause a shahid. It's even found in pre Islamic Arabic poetry. They would refer to that person as a shahid. Ashhada nafsahu, like basically this person presented himself for this sacrifice. So that's why they would call him shaheed. Wallahu ta'ala alam al-bisar. Zakum Allah khairan. Subhanallah bihamdihi, subhanakallah bihamdihi.